My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I'm your host, Leon Meowser, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross, Antietam to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania. 1861 to 1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the Rank and File. This is Episode 18. Chapter 9 of Scenes and Incidents of the Battle of Gettysburg, and we are picking up at Halleck's Instructions to Meade. Governor Curtin of Pennsylvania and the Governor of Maryland had each issued calls, backed by the leading journals of the country, appealing to President Lincoln to save their respective states, and particularly Pennsylvania, from the invasion of the Confederate armies that threatened a campaign of pillage and plunder, and to capture and sack the great city of Philadelphia and the capital city of the state, Harrisburg, and that this duty, thus devolving upon the Army of the Potomac, was paramount to any other obligation of General Meade, its commander. How nobly General Meade, his officers and men, could justly conclude on discovering Lee's retreat and abandonment of his superior position on the ridges opposite that of the Army of the Potomac, that his army had, at great loss and sacrifice, more than accomplished its mission in responding to the appeals of the public, that the Confederate army be driven from Pennsylvania soil and south of the Potomac, turning the invasion of Lee's triumphal army into a disastrous defeat. General Meade's instructions from General Halleck, President Lincoln's military advisor, were to follow up in close pursuit and overtake General Lee in his invasion of Pennsylvania, and to prevent the threatened capture by the Confederates of Harrisburg and Philadelphia, at the same time keeping Baltimore and Washington within his protection. With but three days' elevation to the command of the Army of the Potomac, General Meade had but little time to plan a great battle at Gettysburg, while also being handicapped by his strict instructions from the General-in-Chief, Halleck, to arrest the march of Lee's army against the cities named. The meeting at Gettysburg of the two armies was well known to be merely accidental and not preconcerted by either Lee or Meade. General Meade, therefore, because of his instructions, decided not to assume the offensive unless absolutely compelled to do so, and, therefore, sought the very strong position presented by the ridges and topography of the locality of Gettysburg to make the battle on his part what is known as a defensive battle. He, therefore, chose his position, posted his troops and battalions for miles in front of the enemy's strong positions, thereby challenging and awaiting the attack of the Confederates. The Confederate positions were veritable Gibraltar strongholds, and had Meade and his generals assumed the offensive and sought to storm and capture the strong positions on the fortified ridges liberally supplied with batteries at every available point, it would have been welcomed by the Confederate commander, 
as was the persistent disastrous attack made by Burnside on the fortified ridges held by Lee at Fredericksburg, and later by Grant's disastrous charges and repulses on Lee's position at Cold Harbor, and would no doubt have been followed by similar losses and final repulses. The wisdom of General Meade's decision to make the battle on his part purely defensive was verified soon after by the Confederate generals being compelled to assume the offensive against the Union line. The story of the wheat field, the peach orchard, Little Round Top, the repulse of Pickett's Charge, the defense of Cemetery Hill, and the great cavalry encounter on the flanks of Meade's army all attest the superiority and success of Meade's plans over that of the Confederate chieftain. General Meade, having with his army complied with his instructions to intercept the invading column of Lee and to prevent the further invasion of Pennsylvania and the capture of Harrisburg and Philadelphia, as well as affording protection, Baltimore and Washington, from the Confederate army within a day's march of these cities, might well consider, as did all the generals surviving the battle, that their successful efforts, ending and driving the Confederates south of the Potomac, would meet the prompt approval of General Halleck. General Meade and his army had, as stated, more than fulfilled General Halleck's instructions in every respect. Yet, strange to say, instead of thanks, General Meade's action in not totally annihilating the Confederate army was so sharply criticized by Halleck and others that General Meade promptly tendered his resignation as commander of the Army of the Potomac. It is needless to say, however, that the great and just Lincoln refused to accept his resignation and compelled Halleck and other carpers against General Meade publicly to retract their unjust complaints. Congress, which was in session, also voted the thanks of the nation to General Meade for his great victory at Gettysburg. A singular coincidence to the experience of General Meade may be mentioned in the fact that General Lee, commanding the Confederate Army, also tendered his resignation to the President of the Southern Confederacy because of the official censure and criticisms expressed by President Davis at the defeat of his army by the Union forces at Gettysburg and the failure of General Lee to capture Harrisburg and Philadelphia with the Confederate Army invading Maryland and Pennsylvania. Public sentiment in the South, however, came to the relief of General Lee and compelled the Confederate authorities to decline to entertain the resignation of General Lee. No official reports of 155th on Little Round Top. The death of General S.H. Weed, commanding the brigade, and of Colonel O'Rourke, killed early in the battle, prevented official reports from those sources. Lieutenant Colonel John H. Kane, commanding the 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers, resigning soon after the battle, filed no official report of the part taken by the regiment in the capture and defense of Little Round Top on July 2nd and 3rd. Fortunately, however, from two other reliable sources of actual participants, accounts of the battle have been prepared and published and so accurately describing the events that they are deemed appropriate for incorporating in this history. The first is the description of the advance of Wheat's brigade at Double Quick, up the rocky heights of Little Round Top, and the bloody encounter occurring there. The writer is Dr. Porter Farley of Rochester, New York, who was serving in the battle as adjutant 
of the 140th New York Volunteers in Wheat's Brigade. Adjutant Farley followed the brave young Colonel O'Rourke in leading the men of the 140th New York in the storming of Little Round Top, and was the first to reach the body of O'Rourke as he fell pierced by a ball from a Confederate sharpshooter. As the scenes and experience of the 155th Regiment Pennsylvania Volunteers was similar to that of the 140th New York in the absence of official reports, Adjutant Farley's historical account is given in full. The second report of the eventful scenes on Little Round Top is in a letter from General G.K. Warren describing the exciting events of the arrival of Wheat's Brigade. The following are the extracts from Dr. Farley's historical sketch of the scenes in question. Quote, the 1st Division of our Corps, commanded by Brigadier General Barnes, had preceded us, and our division, the 2nd under Brigadier General Ayers, followed it. Our brigade, under Brigadier General Stephen H. Weed, led the division, and though my recollection of the order in which the regiments were marching does not agree with that of other officers present, I think that our regiment was the rear one of the brigade, and that the leading regiments of our brigade were just over that slightly elevated ground north of Little Round Top, when down its slope on our left, accompanied by a single mounted officer and an orderly, rode General G.K. Warren, our former brigade commander, then acting as General Meade's chief engineer. Warren came straight towards the head of the regiment where I was riding with the colonel. He called out to O'Rourke, beginning to speak while still some eight or ten rods from us, that he wanted us to come up there, that the enemy were advancing unopposed up the opposite side of the hill, down which we had just come, and he wanted our regiment to meet them. He was evidently greatly excited and spoke in his usual impulsive style. O'Rourke answered, General Weed is ahead and expects me to follow him. Never mind that, said Warren. Bring your regiment up here, and I will take the responsibility. It was a perplexing situation, but without hesitating, O'Rourke turned to the left and followed the officer who had been riding with Warren, while Warren himself rode rapidly down the stony hill. Whether in the direction from which we had just come, or to overtake the rest of the brigade, I cannot say but evidently to find and order up more troops. The cause for this haste is graphically described by General Warren himself in a letter which he kindly wrote me under date of July 13, 1872, from which I here take the liberty to quote. He says, General Warren's account of Little Round Top, quote, Just before the action began in earnest on July 2nd, I was with General Meade near General Sickles, whose troops seemed very badly disposed on that part of the field. At my suggestion, General Meade sent me to the left to examine the condition of affairs, and I continued on until I reached Little Round Top. There were no troops on it, and it was used as a signal station. I saw that this was the key to the whole position, and that our troops in the woods in front of it could not see the ground in front of them, so that the enemy would come upon them before they would be aware of it. The long line of woods on the west side of the Emmitsburg Road, which road was along a ridge, furnished an excellent place for the enemy to form out of sight, so I requested the captain of a rifle battery just in front of Little Round Top to fire a shot into these woods. He did so, and as the shot went whistling through the air and the sound of it reached the enemy's troops, 
and caused everyone to look in the direction of it. This motion revealed to me the glistening of gun barrels and bayonets of the enemy's line of battle, already formed and far outflanking the position of any of our troops, so that the line of this advance from his right to Little Round Top was unopposed. I have been particular in telling this as the discovery was intensely thrilling to my feelings and almost appalling. I immediately sent a hastily written dispatch to General Meade to send a division, at least to me, and General Meade directed the 5th Army Corps to take position there. The battle was already beginning to rage at the Peach Orchard, and before a single man reached Little Round Top, the whole line of the enemy moved on us in splendid array, shouting in the most confident tones. While I was still all alone with the signal officer, the musket balls began to fly around us, and he was about to fold up his flags and withdraw, but remained at my request and kept waving them in defiance. Seeing troops going out on the Peach Orchard Road, I rode down the hill and fortunately met my old brigade. General Weed, commanding it, had already passed the point, and I took the responsibility to detach Colonel O'Rourke, the head of whose regiment I struck, who, on hearing my few words of explanation about the position, moved at once to the hilltop. About this time, First Lieutenant Charles E. Hazlitt of the 5th Artillery, with his battery of rifled cannon, arrived. He comprehended the situation instantly and planted his guns on the summit of the hill. He spoke to the effect that though he could do little execution on the enemy with his guns, he could aid in giving confidence to the infantry. He stayed there till he was killed. I did not see Vincent's brigade come up, but I suppose it was about this time they came, and coming up behind me through the woods and taking post to the left their proper place, I did not see them. The full force of the enemy was now sweeping the Third Army Corps from its untenable position, and no troops nor any reinforcements could maintain it. It was the dreadful misfortune of the day that any reinforcements went to that line, for all alike, Third Corps, Second Corps, and Fifth Corps were driven from it with great loss. The earnest appeals for support drew. I suppose the troops of the Fifth Corps, away from their intended position, that is, Little Round Top, out on the road to the Peach Orchard, and so it was that the Fifth Corps reached this vital point in such small detachments. I was wounded with a musket ball while talking with Lieutenant Hazlitt on the hill, but not seriously, and seeing the position saved, while the whole line to the right in front of us was yielding and melting away under the enemy's fire in advance, I left the hill to rejoin General Meade, near the center of the field for a new crisis was at hand. Unquote. Regiment Exchanges Arms At Gettysburg, on the 4th of July, Colonel Kane, who for months previous had been in correspondence with the government, requesting that he be allowed to exchange the Harper's Ferry Buckenball guns of the 155th Regiment for more modern arms without success, of his own accord, took advantage of the opportunity to supply his command with the improved Springfield rifles from the thousands of dead Union soldiers, United States regulars, and volunteer troops on the field in front of Little Round Top. He therefore announced to the men that the enemy, having abandoned the battlefield for a mile in front of Little Round Top, including Devil's Den, that they were at liberty to visit the actual battlefield for the purpose of gathering the arms of the dead and wounded. The horrible sights and scenes of the unburied dead 
is beyond the power of pen to describe. Private John C. Sias of Company I relates that while on this errand in search of arms, he came across, on the immense boulders comprising Devil's Den, scores of dead Confederate sharpshooters, many of whom had dropped down into crevices among the massive rocks to a depth that made impossible the recovery of their bodies, that one particular dead Confederate sharpshooter occupied a ledge of a rock, his musket and his hands resting on the rock, apparently sighting his weapon. He had been shot in the forehead and instantly killed. The position of the body of the dead Confederate remaining unchanged. It presented a truly gruesome sight. No firing of the enemy, even of their sharpshooters, took place while the Union troops from Little Round Top and vicinity were exploring the Peach Orchard, Wheat Field, and Devil's Den on the 4th, except when members of the regiment, exchanging arms, ventured too close to the Union outposts and mingled among the Bucktail and the Burdan sharpshooters on the advanced picket line. Shots were then occasionally exchanged by the opposing pickets, but they were only desultory and did but little harm. General Farnsworth's Charge of Cavalry One of the many striking episodes of the Grand Battle of Gettysburg was the tragic death of General Elon J. Farnsworth, which occurred on the 3rd of July. About two o'clock in the afternoon, when the air was being made discordant with hideous noises, and the earth was seemingly rocking and reeling like a drunken man, from the brazen throats of 225 pieces of artillery, exploding caissons and ammunition wagons of both armies, General Farnsworth Brigade of Kilpatrick's Division of Pleasanton's Cavalry Corps swept around the base of Little Round Top and charged upon the right flank of Lee's army, resting upon the Emmitsburg Road. This point, so vital to the safety of the Confederate army, was most carefully and strongly guarded by artillery and infantry. So fierce and impetuous, however, was the onslaught of this cavalry brigade under General Farnsworth, that they rode over the enemy's pickets and skirmishers and faced the infantry lines with flashing sabers. The Confederate General Law relates that so courageous and determined was the assault of the Federal troopers in this charge that they forced their horses up to the very muzzles of the rifles of the Confederate infantry and that the use of artillery was unavailable against them. The 1st Vermont Cavalry, under General Farnsworth in person, broke through the strongly defended line and swept up the valley in the rear of the enemy's main line in gallant style. The jaded and exhausted steeds of the sturdy Vermonters, however, soon flagged and, checked in front by overwhelming forces of infantry and hemmed in on all sides by superior forces of the enemy, the little band, with rapidly emptying saddles, was compelled to describe a complete circle and attempt to escape by charging upon the point of the enemy in line where they had broken in. This gap, however, had by this time been closed by a strong force of the enemy, the severe fire from which caused the remnant of the brave riders to recoil and veer to the left. About a dozen of the troopers at this point separated from the main body of the riders and made their escape by running the gauntlet of the fire of an entire Confederate regiment. General Farnsworth, with his handful of intrepid followers, sought refuge in the woods at the base of Little Round Top, 
There they ran upon the skirmish line of the 15th Alabama Confederate Regiment, and, pistol in hand, General Farnsworth, already sorely wounded, demanded their surrender. In return, the Confederate skirmish line fired upon him, killing his horse and wounding the general in several places. As the devoted general fell from his horse, a Confederate lieutenant approached and demanded his surrender, which the general curtly refused, at the same time shooting himself through the head with his own revolver. It is related from Confederate sources that while General Farnsworth was massing his troops for the charge in close proximity to the Confederate lines, a voice was heard to exclaim in loud, angry, and excited tones, Colonel, if you are afraid to attack, by God, I will lead the charge myself. It was supposed, in Confederate circles, that, knowing the madness of the proposed attack upon the enemy's strong infantry lines, General Farnsworth had advised against it, but stung to the quick by the implied insinuation of General Kilpatrick, he was goaded on to make the desperate charge which routed every obstruction in his path and resulted in his own untimely death, as well as the loss of a most gallant regiment. Falling within the Union line, this young general, not yet twenty-five years of age, was buried in the town cemetery of Gettysburg, in a grave surrounded by broken shafts and headstones, uprooted ground and splintered trees. The scene of the awful fighting and destructive firing on the first and second day at Gettysburg. The charge at Balakalava was surpassed by the bold charge of General Farnsworth, and, like that celebrated charge, it was not war, but a useless sacrifice of life. From the position on Little Round Top, the 155th Regiment, occupying its summit, had an excellent view of this dashing cavalry raid of Farnsworth into the very jaws of death. And we will pick up next week with Confederate Prisoners, the next part in this chapter. And I've got a lot of notes to read, so let's just dive right into it. First off, I want you all to know before we continue that I will be moving all episode releases to Friday. I have some unforeseen issues have come up, and it's just not working for me right now to do it on Wednesdays, so I duly apologize. Friday mornings, the episode will release, so you'll be able to listen to it on the weekend or on your morning commute to start the weekend, or I guess on Monday if you're busy. So, uh, one more quick announcement. It's actually a big announcement. I, uh, I plan on marching to Gettysburg this year. I'll be retracing the steps of the Union Fifth Corps from probably about Frederick, Maryland, and march there to Gettysburg for the first, second, and third anniversary. And I plan on marching there in Union uniform, equipment, food supplies, hardtack included. And I'll be camping along the way in a half-shelter tent, just anywhere that I can. So I'll be recording the entire event on GoPro, which I suppose I'll edit together when I'm all said and done back home. I'm not a reenactor. I just think it's going to be sufferingly fun. Going on long marches is something that I'm used to, having been in, in the Marine Corps infantry. I'll have more information the closer we get to uh, when I'm actually going to go. And of course, it's going to be on my website, rebellionstories.com. Now let's move on to this episode, and let's talk about a tall order that was asked of Meade. Because he was asked to protect 
Washington, D.C., Harrisburg, Philadelphia, and also defeat the Army of Northern Virginia, while keeping the Army of the Potomac between them and D.C., all on three days' notice. And I'm starting to think this General Halleck guy is not a very nice man with the way he's treating his generals. Like, I get it up to this point. The other generals have been, uh, you know, kind of lackluster at best. But, you know, he's only been in command for a few days, and it's hard to plan a battle that way. I totally agree with the author on this one, or the authors. And I do believe Meade tried to refuse command, but Lincoln told him that wasn't an option. So talk about a promotion, I guess. And there is one thing that I do want to talk about here, kind of before we get into it. I really want to set the tone about this battle and all future battles and the battles that had happened previously. Can you imagine if the Confederates had won at Gettysburg? what that actually means. And they went on to ransack Pennsylvania. Now, thank goodness that never happened. And the Keystone State stayed free from that type of robbery because it wasn't just food stuff and horses that they were taking. I mean, they were taking people too. Enslaving free people that they found and escaped slaves alike. One of the things that I always try and remember while imagining the Confederate army in my head moving through the state of Maryland and Pennsylvania, when I read this, is the Confederate army was an army of slavers, and the backbone of the Confederate war effort was slaves. It's not something you see in reenactments or movies generally. During the invasion of the North, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 slaves traveled with the army of Northern Virginia, and many did try or did successfully escape and then went on to join the Union Army later on, which is great. And some of my favorite stories are Confederate soldiers coming back from the battle to find that their slaves and their personal belongings are gone. And I do want to point out today that some people will try and pass these slaves traveling with the army as Confederate soldiers. But the Confederates, the Confederate government, the Confederate army, and Southerners throughout the South abhorred the idea of, of black soldiers. And many of these slaves had family back home that were being held as hostages to be like, you're going to go out with the army, you're going to go with your master, but if you're not good, if you try and escape, what's going to happen to your wife back home or your kids back home? And that's why for a lot of people, when you're looking at this, that they had these apparently, quote, good, unquote, slaves, not mentioning the type of force that was used to keep them in line. And black Confederate soldiers is just one of those very fancy lost cause narratives. Let's bring this up for a moment. Philip Schaeff, a professor at Mercersburg Theological Seminary, asked a Confederate soldier guarding a wagon load of African Americans, whom the Southerners claimed were Virginia slaves. Do you not feel bad and mean in such an occupation? He boldly replied that he felt very comfortable they were only reclaiming their property, which we, Pennsylvania residents, had stolen and harbored, Philip recalled the man saying. Now, slave patrol duty was compulsory work for most able-bodied white men in many states throughout the South, so kidnapping African Americans and seeing them tortured was common to many of them. It's estimated that some 1,000 free people were enslaved by the Confederate Army during their invasion into Maryland and Pennsylvania. In fact, at Winchester on June 16th, 
near midnight, Rachel Cormany tells us that she ran to her window and saw graybacks going as fast as their horses could take them down towards the Chambersburg main square. And by dawn, it was clear that the Confederates were hunting up contrabands, free people that they were assuming were slaves, and driving them off in droves, as Cormie described it, quote, Oh, how it grated our hearts to have to sit quietly and look at such brutal deeds. I saw no men among the contrabands, all women and children, she writes. Some of the colored people who were raised here were taken along. I sat on the front step as they were driven by like we would drive cattle. And Chester K. Leach, of the 2nd Vermont Infantry, who's part of uh, John Sedgwick's 6th Corps, observed the aftermath of one such confrontation, riding home, observed the aftermath of a man who would not go home with the Confederate Army. Quote, I saw a sight yesterday that beats all I ever saw. A black man who refused to go over the river with Confederate forces during the retreat became the target of a brutal assault as punishment for resisting. His breast and bowels were scratched or cut, and his privates had been cut off. Leach was among a group of soldiers who were watching the suffering man who was laying on his back with his legs bent and his knees up and grating his teeth from the pain or from his torture. Luckily for us, terrible people always leave a paper trail when they do terrible things. And I might want to add, like right now, we are outraged and rightfully so at the war crimes being perpetrated by the Russian government and its military against the civilians in Ukraine, against women and children. Could you imagine if right now, if they were kidnapping women and children and enslaving them, that's a pretty heinous war crime. And if the Union Army had not stopped Lee, how many more free people of the United States of America would have been kidnapped and enslaved? Longstreet knew it was happening, and General Pickett knew it was happening. They talked about it in their dispatches together. Meade did more than just defeat Lee or save D.C. or Harrisburg. He prevented thousands of residents of Pennsylvania from being kidnapped by a literal army of slavers. And he still gets yelled at by Halleck. Well, General Meade, and to the Army of the Potomac, here's a drink to you, good sir, and your brave men. And also, the next time that you're watching the movie Gettysburg, behind all of those trees, when the Confederates come out of them, just imagine the thousands of enslaved people who are just out of sight, because they did exist. Let's talk about Governor K. Warren's letter that he reads, or that is written, and uh, I got to read, um, about him standing on little round top with his aides and some sign signal men, while regiment upon regiment of Confederate soldiers bearing down on him. That's a certain type of bravery, isn't it? And it was just fantastic to read. I could see it in my mind's eye, the way that he described it. And then he's just like, well... I've saved the army now. It's time for me to write off again and go somewhere else. It's just very entertaining to read. So I really, I really enjoyed that part. The 155th getting to supply its new weapons from all of the dead soldiers in front of them is incredibly gruesome. And I assure you that no soldier wants to get new weapons that way, especially when they're friendlies. 
And Devil's Den being as gruesome just aligns with every account we have over it. Because you have to remember, the rebels had to fight through it. And Union soldiers were already there. So there were Union bodies and Confederate just crossed all over here. And I really wanted to reread a quote from this book again. The earth was seemingly rocking and reeling like a drunken man of the brazen throats of 225 pieces of artillery, exploding caissons and ammunition wagons. It certainly does put things in perspective, doesn't it? The fury and power that is all thrown into one little area that's just a vortex of death and violence. My goodness. All right. General Kilpatrick making a surprise appearance. He was known as Kill Calvary by his men. And with a name like that, you can probably imagine why when he is in charge of the Calvary. That man, like, of course, he makes an appearance where he gets his men killed, ordering a suicidal charge. It's not the first time. It's not going to be the last time. And he had no qualms with being a bad, a bad dude. He's like the Nathan Bedford Forrest of the North, and I mean that with all possible slander. And that General Farnsworth led the charge so heroically and pointlessly is once again just another sacrifice of brave men who died for no reason, like so many before him and so many after him. And him shooting himself in the head rather than being captured was extremely metal, but it also made me really angry. Because the fact that it was compared to the charge of the Light Brigade is not a compliment to anyone who knows anything about the charge of the Light Brigade. And as soon as that was mentioned in my mind's eye, I knew exactly how it played out. But I bet it scared the rebels, though. All right, my friends, with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. It's getting a little long anyway. We will pick up, we'll finish the rest of this chapter next week. And remember, it's going to come out on next Friday, but it's going to give me a little bit not being in the middle of the week is going to allow me to do more work during the week so I can have kind of like more resources available for you guys to look at on my website, to trawl through and go through. So that, my friends, I'll see you in the next episode. And if you want, come check out my website at rebellionstories.com because I'm going to plug my website every single episode from now until literally the end of time. When I die and I can't do these episodes anymore. Bye bye. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue, no more the bugle calls the weary one. Rest, noble spirit, in thy grave alone. They will find you and know you amongst the good and when a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue, he cried, Give me water and just one little crumb, and my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good, and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven. In my faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit In thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the 
good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue.